Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our Monday night prayer meeting. Tonight is an interesting night, at least for me. I hope I don't put you guys to sleep. For those uh, who are listening to the archive of tonight's meeting, we don't usually record them, but tonight we felt that uh, we'd record it. Anyway, we meet here on the System Access Mobile Network or on SAMnet every Monday night. And what we do here is we just pray for, first of all, of course, our world and our countries, wherever they may be and wherever we may be. And uh, and then, of course, uh, we pray for our family and friends, and we pray for you, the people listening to this archive. We pray for members of the community, whatever struggles they may be going through. This is not a a Serotech thing. I'm a Christian, and you guys are going to hear the story tonight about how that happened. Those uh, folks who are here are also believers, and possibly folks who don't know if they're believers yet or want to find out what a relationship with Jesus Christ is all about. For record's sake, this is not Serotech endorsed, and it's Monday nights, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Time and 8 p.m. Central. So uh, this is Thanksgiving week, and Thanksgiving week is really special to me in particular. It was about 14 years ago that I got to know our Lord and Savior Jesus, and it was a very unique experience. Everybody's testimony is so important. When anybody becomes a believer, the Bible says that there's a party in heaven. And of course, I'm paraphrasing, but the heavens rejoice. And there is a party going on every time someone becomes a believer. And by telling my story, I certainly don't mean to minimize anybody else's. I think it's amazing whenever anybody comes to the feet of Jesus. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I rarely try to convince people about my faith. I know what works for me, and it works a lot. It's been working for me for 14 years, and I'll tell you the story if you want to hear it. And I'm certainly not going to push it on you, but I'll tell you the story, and you can make your own decisions from there. I do say one thing to him, though, and that is, if you think that I might even slightly be on track here, I want you to go home, and when nobody's looking, I want you to pray the fair prayer. And the fair prayer is, God, if you're real, then I want to get to know you. And if you're not, then I'm just making a fool of myself, but there's nobody here to see me, so I'm just making a fool of myself and nobody will ever know. And that's it. And I believe that God honors that. I can tell you that my profession of faith was a whole lot cruder than that. And I'll tell you, he met me where I was at the time, and it was just an amazing, amazing thing. We're usually not this formal on Monday night. It's usually pretty relaxed. It's usually a group of anywhere from 10 to 20 people or more, and and, uh, we all just kind of hang out in here and share. It really uh, is not this uh, somber with one person talking. But tonight, uh, I wanted to share my heart because of the season, and and I appreciate you guys uh, indulging me. But uh, if you turn in your Bibles, if you have them handy, to Proverbs 18.21, and it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. How many times have we heard that scripture? So keep that in mind as I tell you the story here. It was 1953, and Carlos was a a young man. He was 13 years old, and he lived in Camahuaycua, Cuba, which is a country area of Cuba. Carlos was a rough kid. He rode around on a horse, didn't really care for too many people. If kids wouldn't invite him to play in their games and whatnot, Carlos would get into fights with him. He was always getting in trouble in school. See, Carlos was the product of a broken home. His parents got divorced when Carlos was real young, so so he was just a ticked-off kid, like many of uh, today's youth are, unfortunately, because of the problems of broken homes. Carlos would go uh, swimming in a lake that there were. In Cuba, people say, well, there's only beaches. No, there's also lakes there. And he would go swimming in this lake, 
And as he would be swimming in there, the horse would sit on the shore and uh, he would invite the horse to come into the lake with him. The horse would come in and start to play with him. And if anybody came near the lake, the horse would run out and try and bite them. This particular day, Carlos had uh, been down at the lake and he had been playing with his horse. Carlos uh, wanted to go by and see his mom. When he got to his mom's place, there was a man sitting there on the couch. Carlos said hi to his mom and talked to her and whatnot. Carlos is looking at this guy and here's this guy and he's got torn socks on. He's got no shoes on his feet and he's got ragged out pants on. And his mom says, Carlos, would you like the blind man to play you a song? And, uh, and that was when Carlos noticed the guitar sitting by the, the blind man there on the floor. And Carlos, being the audacious, outspoken, ruffian kid that he was, he looked at it and said, I don't want the blind guy to play a song for me. He said, I don't even know why he was ever born. If I ever had a blind child, I'd drown it. I'd kill it. And, you know, this is a, a small country area in Cuba. Everybody was shocked. Carlos's uh, father was a wealthy landowner in those parts. His brothers were all pretty good kids. He was the black sheep of the family, you know. And uh, for him to say that in this type of an environment, you know, in a small country setting was very shocking. In Cuba, blind folks are not looked at the way they are here in the United States, in many South and Central American countries as well. Blind people are looked at as folks that can't do much. We're out there as beggars or the women's cases. Sometimes they're put out for prostitution. And I've just heard some horrible stories of different countries. But in Cuba, for example, generally you'll see a blind person selling pencils or playing guitar. And, and from what I understand now, it's gotten a little bit better where a blind person can get taught how to read Braille or how to use a computer. But I have yet to uh, hear a story of a blind person working. So that was pretty intriguing for me to learn. It was very shocking for the town to hear Carlos say these things. So Carlos's life went on and he grew up and he ultimately left Cuba. He got involved uh, in uh, 1959 and 1960 with the whole revolutionary thing with Castro and, and with communism and ended up uh, getting about five hours to leave the island. The revolution at that time divided many families. And uh, unfortunately, Carlos's family was, uh, was one of those that was divided, and his family gave him five hours to get off the island. If not, they were going to basically hunt him down. Carlos moved to New Orleans, where Carlos worked on the docks in New Orleans, and he drove an ambulance, and he just had odd jobs. He was a Cuban immigrant to the United States, and uh, ultimately met a woman and, and got married, and they had their first son, Carlos. Carlos was, uh, was born in 1965, and they were very happy. Two years later, they were living in Atlanta. They had another son, and about four and a half months after that son was born, they started realizing that something was different about the way that he would conduct himself. He wouldn't look at things straight. He responded only to sound. He would turn his face in the direction of sound. And they took the child down to the doctor. They had moved to Miami by that time. Atlanta was not a good place to live in the 60s. Uh, there was a lot of racism and a lot of issues in Atlanta. So they had moved down to Miami and they went down to a place in Miami and, and they found out that their son was indeed blind. Carlos, uh, I'm sure, was very shocked. I know because Carlos told me the story about six months ago. Carlos is my father. It is uh, an amazing, gut-wrenching story to hear your father talk about how he, at 13 years of age, said that he 
would drown or kill his blind child if he ever had one. It was one of those things that I just seek the Lord and I said, Lord, how can I comfort this man? How can I help him understand that this was not done that way? I know that life and death are in the power of the tongue and and we've talked about it before, but my interpretation and my understanding of life and death and the power of the tongue Contrary to what a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters would say about the name it and claim it folks, that if you say it's going to be this way, it's going to be that way. And if you say it's going to be the other way, it's going to be the other way. Like God is just sitting up there to wait for you to say the wrong thing so he can just lay a bad one on you. And I just don't believe in that. I believe that life and death being in the power of the tongue, well, you know, the word says one thing about us as believers. God says one thing about his creation in scripture and I believe that if we don't agree with God, then God really can't work in our lives. He doesn't have the freedom to work in our lives. Obviously, he's God and we're not, and he can do whatever he wants. But the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, they're gentlemen. They're not going to force you to do anything. So to me, life and death being in the power of the tongue is, well, do you believe what the word says about you or do you believe what the world says about you? Needless to say, I was shocked when I heard this story because, you know, I've been blind for 41 years. And I'd never understood. And I'd asked the Lord, Lord, what what is it? Why was I born blind? It was a weird thing for me because there's nothing in my family to ever back that up. I started praying on it. I was asked a while ago to, to give a testimony in Puerto Rico. And I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity to share this time. First thing I told dad was I said, well, dad, And my dad's not a believer, by the way. My word says that uh, me and my entire household will be saved. So I'm believing for his salvation uh, in God's time. Exodus 4.11, it says, And the Lord said to him, and and God is talking to Moses here, because Moses is telling God, you know, you want to send me? I I can't go to talk to these people and tell them uh, uh, what you're going to do for them. Who, Who am I? I'm a nobody. And God says, Who has made man's mouth? Who takes away a man's voice or hearing? or makes him seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Basically, folks, God takes responsibility for what is going on in our lives. It's important that we understand that as blind folks, because as we've grown up in in religious circles, and I've been privy to this as well, we're told, oh, it must have been something that happened. You know, this is an affliction from God, or this is something your parents did that you're you're a sinner, you know, this is sin in your life or in your parents' life. The sins of the parents will be visited upon the children down to the third and fourth generation. Just to clarify, it doesn't work that way. In the scripture, the only place I've ever found, and I've, I've read the Bible a couple times through, the only place I found where blindness was used as an affliction was in the book of Sodom and Gomorrah. And even there, it was after some men wanted to uh, practice some lascivious behavior with uh, some angels that had come down and were in Lot's house. Lot had actually even offered up his daughters to the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they said, no, no, we want the angels instead. It was uh, a thing where I said, wait a minute, I've never seen in the scripture where a blind person has been made blind because of sin. In John chapter 9, it actually covers that. Dad didn't know what to do with me. Here he is, new country, new language. They told him that the best school for blind folks was up in Michigan. So up, mom and dad and Carlos, my brother went and we all moved to Michigan. And I got my training at good old Michigan School for the Blind. And Michigan at that time was probably the most American area of the United States. Didn't know the language or anything, but got my training up there. And uh, after a couple years, booked back down to Miami. Ended up back in Miami 
when I was about seven and started going to school in Miami, ended up uh, starting in school in first grade and was special ed classes for the first year till I tested out or I don't know exactly what happened. But bottom line is I got mainstreamed when I was in second grade. And from second grade forward, I would go to a resource class. And at that time, it wasn't like now, I guess, where the kids, you know, have note takers and all that stuff. Slate and stylus so you could take notes in class and maybe a brailler if you, if you weren't making too much noise to bother the rest of the class. But you'd go to this resource class. And I remember when I was 12, I met a psychologist. At that time, for whatever reason, in Dade County Public Schools, they used to give all the special ed kids or exceptional children, they call them now, but back then it was special ed. They'd give us all psychological evals. And to my knowledge, I've got five kids and they don't give my kids psychological evals. So we were special. At the time, I remember talking to the psychologist. The psychologist meant well by telling me that, you know, you were born with a strike against you. Then that means that you're going to have to work three times as hard as everybody else to accomplish your goals, young man. So I guess that that was supposed to encourage me to work harder. But instead, quite honestly, what it did was tick me off. I was a a smart kid and I said, you know, why should I have to work any harder than anybody else to achieve the same goals? And that continued to follow me and follow me. And as I got older and started dealing with some of the biases in the world and started realizing, you know, my dad, he loves me, but he doesn't know how to deal with me because my dad didn't speak the language. My mom uh, and dad both have uh, minimal educations. I'm talking third, fourth grade. So my dad would come in to try and advocate for me at school. And of course, he'd be the loud, raucous Cuban screaming and yelling and using profane language and all that kind of stuff. So needless to say, I didn't call dad in uh, for my protection very often because, of course, he was the laughing stock of the school. I really felt in many ways like a lone ranger. That resulted in me getting to be more and more rebellious and looking for acceptance wherever I could find it. When I was 12, 13, I got involved in radio, as most of us blind folks dream of being in radio one day. I got involved in a public access radio station down in Miami and started working at a skating rink as a DJ. And so I had my own little thing going on. And everybody thought it was so amazing that the blind guy could actually DJ and spin records. It really allowed me to start to flourish in what was uh, then the music industry. And it was the start of the 80s and the disco era and it was kind of a crazy time in Miami and so I started working in the clubs at a very young age and uh, I remember being 14 15 years old and DJing in adult clubs and by the time I was 16 I would work at a club I'd start at uh, nine o'clock at night and uh, stop at 4 30 5 o'clock in the morning go home take a shower go to school well sometimes I'd go to school go home go to sleep do my homework maybe, and uh, then go back out and do the whole thing all over again. I was making a lot of money at the time and just never understood when I would be told, well, you know, you need to get this diploma to get a good job. Well, shoot, my job seemed pretty darn good to me at the time. As I grew and I was looking for acceptance, I started running into gangs. I started running into people that smoked dope, kind of got involved in that whole thing. I started smoking weed when I was about 13 and all the uh, trappings that go along with it. At that time, it wasn't as gangster, I guess, as it is today with the kids. It was just something you did. And uh, it was the 80s. And and you started there. And then you moved into cocaine. And you moved into other kinds of drugs that uh, Miami had to offer at the time. Of course, I was involved in the music scene and, and in the clubs and all that. It was always there. You know, I was just looked at by these people as one of their homies. And uh, one day met somebody and got hooked up and started becoming uh, these people's supplier and 
started selling this and that here and there and just kind of became a very young, uh, creative uh, entrepreneur, street entrepreneur. That continued on for longer than I'd like to admit. It actually continued on for a number of years after that, well into my adulthood and into my marriage. Opened up a studio, and by the time I was 18, I dropped out of high school. They tried to keep me back for a number of years because they didn't get my books brailed in time one year. So they decided that instead of helping me out here, doing something so I could get on a fast track, well, I was blind. So in Dade County at the time, if you were special ed, they could keep you till you were 21 because special ed folks, uh, we don't mature as fast as the rest of the people in the world. At that time, they tried to keep me in Dade County Public Schools till I was 21, to which I said, heck no, maybe not that nicely, and uh, said they'd have to take me to court for all that. My parents agreed at the time I was working. When I was 12 years old, I told my dad, and I know I'm going back a little bit, but I told my dad, I want to go to work. And he said, really, you want to go to work? I said, yeah. He said, that's fine. He said, you don't have to. He said, and I said, yeah, but I want to buy nice clothes. And I said, well, what's wrong with the clothes you got? I said, well, no, I just want to buy my own clothes. And I want to buy records and, you know, and I want to do whatever I want to do. You know, he said, well, good. He said, well, with money comes responsibility. I said, really, what does that mean? He said, it means $200 a month rent. I said, what? He said, that's right. If you're going to work, you're going to pay rent. And from the time I was 12 years old, I was paying rent at my home. And some people would look at that and say, man, that's cruel. But the reality is that uh, I thank God my father did that. My father taught me how to be a man by example in that way. And I can never thank him enough for that. When I left the school, I, I opened up a studio and I was producing music. I met a gal and we started going out. She got pregnant. Can't imagine how that happened. We were going to get married anyway, so we ended up getting married a little early. And at that time, I was 21, and I had long hair past my shoulders. I decided I can't be a studio rat. You know, I've got to be there for my kid. i got to go get a job. And I went and I got a job at a bank. Those of you that have heard me talking before on the podcast and stuff, you know, I went to go get a job at a bank, and they didn't know what to do with us people. And got kind of frustrated about the attitudes of the people at the bank, and I was just angry. It was always there. The rage was always there. I used to just walk through the streets of Miami, the most dangerous parts of Miami, and just didn't care. And I would deal with people that were much scarier than I, much bigger than me, armed or not, I didn't care. And it was just, I had a death wish, man. I just didn't care. No self-value or whatever. I lived for the moment. Tomorrow didn't matter. I had to work three times as hard as anybody else. The reality was that I said, hey, if I don't do what I'm doing, if I don't sell drugs, if I don't do this, if I don't do that on the street, then, you know, I can't even go out and get a job washing dishes because they won't hire a blind guy washing dishes. It's me making excuses. But of course, can't tell a kid that. My life continued in the craziness. I went to go work at a bank. Bank didn't know what they were in for. What they got was a dressed up hoodlum working at the bank, but an angry one. And then I learned how to use computers and uh, started training folks and really tried to make a difference. The old life kept calling and kept calling and kept calling. And in 1992, due to budget cutbacks in the government, I found myself without a job with no other choice, at least the way I saw it, but to go back to the old life that I knew. So that's what I did. And I lived that life for a couple years. It ended up destroying my family, living life in the fast lane. In 1994, I left home. I decided I wasn't going to be there anymore, didn't love her anymore. I was going to just abandon my family. And I had a son at the time who's uh, grown up to be a a wonderful young man and uh, a daughter on the way who's also a wonderful young lady and just decided because of my hard heart that I was just going to go. 
I went out there, uh, the relationship just continued to deteriorate, deteriorate, deteriorate. And in 1995, things started happening. I was involved, uh, as I said, on the streets. And one of the guys that was with me got shot. Good friend of mine, he got shot. He didn't get killed, but he got shot just too close to home. And he told me later, he said, Mikey, we were driving to the Keys one day and he pulled over the side of the road and he was weeping. And uh, later he told me that he felt that the Holy Spirit had touched him at that time. But we knew nothing about the Holy Spirit at that time. The most we'd ever do is smoke a joint and talk about Jesus. And this is where I started talking about the profession of faith. And I'll make it read PG for the sake of this discussion. But I'll never forget one time I just said, oh, what the hell, you know, I'll, I'll try this Jesus crap out for a while, see if it works. It was a little cruder than that, but uh, we'll leave it there. And uh, just went about my business. Every once in a while, I'd pop into church. My ex-wife, she'd go to church and she'd take the kids. And it was kind of cool. I'd go there and people were real nice. And it was totally the opposite of the world I was living in. You know, I was back to doing music and back to doing my street thing. And, you know, it was nice to see these churchy people that were all nice and stuff. But don't start talking to me about Bibles and Jesus and hell and all that. I don't want to hear about it. I basically uh, would just go to this place, and I, I remember going and listening to these songs and lifting my hands and just feeling empty. Didn't understand it. Whatever. Pass the joint. You know, move on. And in November of 1995, I said, hey, God, because I used to talk to God like that. I'd just walk around my house saying, hey, God, you know, talk to God, because we had it like that. I told God, hey, God, you know, it would be really cool, man, if you uh, made it possible for me to go chill out over at that pastor guy's house for Thanksgiving with the wife and the kids and all that, just so I can see my kids. I mean, I don't really care if she's there. Well, you know, I got a deal, but just want to see the kids, man. And sure enough, I get a phone call a couple days later. Hey, Mikey, would you like to come to our house for Thanksgiving? It was a small home church, a guy named Danny, who I uh, frequently had long debates with. Danny was a good Baptist and a spirit-filled Baptist, and uh, he was great. Danny would uh, would argue with me about the Bible because, of course, you know, everybody that has never read the Bible before has an opinion about it because it's all contradictory and all that. And Danny would just tell me, you know what, Mikey, when you're ready, you'll come. And that was all. And he said, but I love you, man. And that was the end of that. And I just never understood how the, I would just set out to tick this guy off and he wouldn't get mad. And I was like, man, how is that? So I went to Danny's house and, you know, we're all having our Thanksgiving dinner. It was 1995, Thanksgiving, sitting at the table and Somebody said something about demons. I knew nothing about demons, but somebody said something about demons. And and my ex-wife said, oh, yeah, we've had demons in our marriage for years. And all of a sudden, boom, everybody was gone. And it was the weirdest, weirdest thing because I knew I was still there at that table physically. But I was gone or they were gone. I was I was still there, I guess. And I found myself in the presence of this thing. This presence. I don't know what even to call it to this day, but I felt naked. I felt like it knew everything there was to know about me, and I felt so dirty. It knew everything, man. I couldn't hide anything from it. You know how you you, you put on a good face for people. You just meet somebody, and you smile, and doing all kinds of craziness. They don't know. They're just looking at your face. This thing knew everything. So it freaked me out, man. I didn't know what this thing was, and And it spoke to me in my head. It didn't speak to me audibly. I don't know if I'd have lived hearing that. It spoke to me and it said, look at what you've done with the talents I gave you. I've given you the ability to lead men. 
And what you've done is you've led people astray. You've led people into debauchery and negative things and bad things all your life. And he started showing me and it started flashing me back. I mean, and I had been, my anger and my frustration and my total rebellion, I liked it, y'all. I, I really enjoyed being the hoodlum. I really enjoyed being the bad guy, the tough guy. It was just what I liked to do. I liked to be the guy in power. I liked to be the big dog. At the same time, as he was showing me these things, it was like he was showing me my heart at the same time, you know, and showing me the way that I really was about those things. Because, of course, I would never say those things. I would always say how the world was against me. It didn't understand blind people, and I was an outcast. And if society didn't want me to be a part of it, then I'd build my own society. And then this thing says to me, and look at how many times I've called you and started flashing me back all the way back to when I was a little boy where my parents had taken me to church. I was kneeling, praying with a pastor there. And then when I was 10 years old, I called the phone number that they told you Bible stories. And at the end, they invited you to accept Jesus into your heart. And all of these different times, four, five, six times when I was 18, he called me. And when I was 21, he called me. And then when I was 28, he called me and he said, you know, he said, I have a plan for you, and I have a plan for good for you, and not to harm you. And I knew nothing about scripture, people, nothing at all at that time. And he said, but there's another who has a plan for you as well. He said, reject my plan, and I will never bother you again. And that was it. I came back. I came back. The next thing I knew, it was gone. The entity was gone. The, the feeling was gone. Everything. I, the only thing that was there was just, What? I was straight as an arrow, hadn't smoked anything, hadn't drank anything. I remember getting up and uh, I used to carry a rolling paper and some weed and a bunch of other junk with me. And I remember going to Danny and saying, come here, man, I got to talk to you. And he said, what's up? I said, I don't know what happened to me. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, here. And I handed him all my paraphernalia and I said, you might as well frame these. And he said, what's all this? I said, that's it, man. I'm done. I quit. And he said, what happened? And I said, well, I think I just had an encounter with that Jesus you keep talking to me about. And you know, it freaked me out so bad, dude. I got to get to know him a little bit better. And I didn't know what I was saying. I said, but I have a feeling that I need something called deliverance. And he said, well, he said, come on in. He said, that's cool, man. That's great. And he led me through the sinner's prayer. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior went into a, my office the next day and basically told the people I was working with and the, the drug uh, people that I worked for and all that stuff, hey, I quit. God told me to stop. And people tell me, Mikey, you're getting high on your own supply too much. I said, no, no, this is for real. I've had the pleasure, for those who lived, of talking to a few of those people since from time to time uh, or hearing about them. And some of them ended up in the church. The ones that didn't ended up dead or in jail. Never went back and uh, embarked upon a journey I couldn't explain. I, I wish I could tell you that everything worked out great with my marriage, and my wife realized that I had become a Christian now, and I wore a halo, and everything was great. You know, everybody loved me, and, and it was all good, but it, it wasn't like that. It was the beginning of a journey, a journey that to this day, every day I wake up saying, Lord, what, what are we doing today? But I've learned the more that I've walked with the Lord to trust Him, and to just say, you know what, Lord? It's not my day, it's your day. Whatever you want to do in your day, we're going to do it today. Just kind of started learning about the Lord and, and, and went through a wilderness experience. He kind of took me away and, and put me in my apartment for 30 days or so. And 
We would wrestle, and I would tell him what a good person I really was, and he would show me how everything I did had a self-motivating reason. And I'd say, no, but I was good when I did this, and he'd show me my heart the way he did, and it would break my heart, and it would say, wow, you know, God, I, I do need you. I do need you to, to clean me up and to make me a new creation. And as I studied the scripture, I understood that the good work he has begun in me, he will bring to completion. And what we need to do as believers and as children of God is to submit to him. It's not about our effort. It's not about self-effort. It's about trusting and obeying, trusting that he's going to do the word that he said he was going to do in your life. And he's got a plan for each and every one. I remember some of the scriptures that I started reading were so moving to me. First one was John 9, 1 through 3. And as he passed by, he meaning Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. Now realize it's blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? The same thing that uh, people have been telling maybe a lot of you. I know they've told me that before. Your parents must have done something, because if there's no history of it in your family, there must be something up. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be made manifest in him or might be displayed in him some of your translations say wow that was such an encouragement to me because i never understood why i got a revelation about that blind guy recently because he had been born blind since birth and later on jesus asked him what did he want and he said he wanted his sight i would submit that it wasn't that he was so miserable being blind it was that society treated him so horribly for being blind because of their ignorance that they made him feel like an outcast. The example I give people is, how would you like to have a long neck and six legs? You know, a long neck so you could reach up into the trees and pull fruit down. It seemed kind of silly, right? But if all of us had a long neck and six legs and we could reach up and high into the trees and you were just a silly old human with two legs and a short neck, you'd feel like an outcast. And if somebody who you knew could change that situation for you, you'd ask, even though you'd never had six legs and a long neck, you'd ask for six legs and a long neck just so you would fit in. Because, of course, as humans, we want to fit in. You know, and as I started to contemplate on, on how I didn't fit in, the Lord comforted me by reminding me that Jesus himself was misunderstood by society. That Jesus came and, and he believed in God's calling for his life so much that he died for it. He gave his life for it. He gave his life for us. And as he gave his life for us, and the most amazing thing was, it was like I was watching, I was just there thinking about it and thinking of him on that cross. And as he's there with his crown of thorns and the nails in his hands and people are spitting at him and telling him, come down off the cross. And he just looks down and he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You know, and I said, Jesus, if you could do that and you live in me, and I live in you, and we're one now, then I should be able to do just that. I should be able to forgive them because they know not what they do. But show me, what am I supposed to do? What is your purpose? Here's my life, the miserable garbage that it is. What are you going to do with it? You said you had a plan. What is that plan? And it took a couple of years. I got divorced in 96. 1997, I got remarried to my current wife today. Wandered around, didn't know what I was going to do until 1998. I found something called the internet on the computer. I, I hadn't touched the computer for years. Picked up a copy of Jaws for Windows and I learned Windows with Eric Damery's cassettes. 
forever am indebted to that man and to Ted Henter because as uh, great as Serotech has become to God's glory, God used them and those tapes mightily. I really don't know if I'd be here today if I hadn't uh, listened to those tapes and learned how to use that computer. At that time, uh, I learned about the internet and there was a guy uh, named Jonathan Mosen on the internet who had taken a ragtag bunch of blind people that dreamed about being radio heads and had put together a little radio station. He showed how he could do it in New Zealand and he put this little radio station together, this little thing called ACB Radio. I was intrigued. I never met so many blind folks. I never had known so many blind folks in my life. I created a product with my friend Andy at the time. It was called the Radio Webcaster, and it was a product that would transmit audio from any uh, computer to any FM radio in your house. It was ahead of its time, but it sold some, and, and it was about 150 bucks. and I didn't market it to blind people, but blind people started buying it. Well, I didn't know blind people had money. I didn't know blind people bought stuff. Wait a minute, there's money here. And I started talking to those blind people, and they started telling me about that they wanted easier ways of using the Internet. And I remember... Just God laying on my heart, he said, just walk with me, son, and I'm going to show you. Because I would ask him, Lord, what, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? I don't want to misrepresent you, Lord. I, I can't pay the bills. What are we going to do? I'm not going to go back to what I was doing. It's on you. You know, all I've got is you. See, folks, because as much as I hear the reports and I read the magazine articles, and I'll tell you something, people, without Jesus, I'm nothing more than a thug. I don't have an education. I'm a drop out of high school. But God gave me a vision, and that vision is what we're experiencing right now. God gave me wonderful people around me to make that vision happen. And you know, the good work he's begun in me, he has yet to bring it to completion. So please don't ever look up to me. Look up to him. It's his work. It's his hand. It's his saving grace. It's his knowing of exactly what we need when we need it that takes me through every day. And, and I beseech you, if you don't know Jesus and you hear me today, there is no coincidence in you hearing my voice today. God has moved time and space for you to know that he loves you and he doesn't want you to hurt anymore. And the only way that I can guarantee you that that pain is going to get better is to look for him. It's been a an amazing 14 years with the Lord come this Thursday, or thereabouts, because Thanksgiving's never on the same day. Got five beautiful children. Uh, yeah, he gave me more. And uh, a company that if Serotech shut down tomorrow, if we didn't get any more customers, I've got a lifetime of memories. The stories that I've heard, they bring tears to my eyes. It's an amazing thing that God has done. I don't even know what to say. I'm amazed every time he does what he does. And I just uh, would ask you to reach out to him and ask him what his plan is for you. And as I started out tonight saying, if you don't know him, all I can tell you is what he did in my life. And I can tell you something. If you'll just stop and when nobody's looking, say, God, if you're real and you've done it for him, I know you can do it for me. Do it for me. And if you're not, well, then I'm just praying to nobody and nobody knows any better. I call it the fair prayer. That's fair, right? So if you don't know, do it today. Folks, thank you so much for letting me share my testimony with you. Father, I give you thanks and praise for bringing people to hear what an awesome work you've done in my life.
And Lord, how you continue to glorify yourself, not only on a daily basis, Lord, but hour by hour, minute by minute. And Lord, I I just give you thanks and praise for everything I have, everything that's coming for this company, for this community. Lord, the fact that you're bringing us out of the dark, Lord, that you're using this company, Lord, to break down the walls of accessibility, to level the playing field, Lord, to integrate us with the rest of society. Lord, I yield myself and my staff and the company that you've put in my charge, Lord. We yield to you, Lord, to use us, to work in us, to work through us, to go before us and open the way. Give us favor with people that we meet every day, with people that hear about this wonderful community that you've built, of people that love one another and that care and that want to share their love. Believers and non-believers alike, Lord. Use them all, Lord. Use everybody. Let them know what a wonderful thing. Let them praise you anyway, in spite of where they're hearts are at because there's no way that anybody that can look at this company that's uh, been here for eight years that can't say that it's nothing less than a miracle. Lord, I give you thanks and praise as always. I love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.